Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 this morning. Now, John, Eric, and I spent a little bit of time earlier this week. We are going to take one more month in this series on Ephesus. So we're going to finish First and Second Timothy in the next month, and then we're going to be beginning uh, a new series uh, in September. We have a pretty good, gr- pretty good grasp of it, but I'm going to wait until we get a little closer to share more with you about that series. So, First Timothy chapter six, verses eleven sixteen. That's where we're going to be today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find that, whether it's on your phone or in your lap or wherever it is. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. Before we read that passage, I want to start with a question and a few stories. Do you remember some of the earliest times in your life where you were put in charge of something? Like, do you remember having, being put in charge of your siblings as a babysitter? Do you mean remember being put in charge of a pet Remember being put in charge of something as a younger person the first time you were given responsibility? When I was in high school, I've shared this story a couple times. I think I was a junior in high school and I was working at a grocery store in our small town and uh, they were trying to determine whether I could be a manager and so they put me in charge of closing the store one night. Yeah, this is not a great story, not one of the brightest moments of my life. So I was put in charge of closing the store and so that meant shutting off all the lights, shutting down the freezers and refrigerators, or not shutting them off, but just shutting them down, closing them, uh, taking the deposit to the owner's house and making the deposit for the day, and of course, obviously, locking the doors. Maybe not so obvious to some people. So I did, um, I shut the lights down. That was easy for me to remember because if a light is left on, you see it, right? I got the deposit. I drove it to the uh, owner of the store's house about 9.30 that night. There was a place where he made the deposit. And uh, then I went home. I got up, went to school the next day, and I was in, I think, my first or second period class that morning, and I got called down to the office, which was, not, which was surprisingly not uncommon. I got called down to the office, and they had a phone call for me. It was my boss from my job, and I thought, man, I must have done an incredible job that he would interrupt me at school to call and thank me for my diligence in shutting down his life's work. Well, instead, he told me that I forgot to lock the doors of the store, and they were left unlocked all night long. Didn't set the alarm, didn't lock the doors. I just was whistling my way out the front door, and they stayed open all night. Now, thankfully, it was a small town, and everything was perfectly fine. Nothing was missing. That would not have happened here. But there, everything was perfectly fine. But, man, I had to apologize so profusely to him over the phone right there in the office. And I just felt like I really let him down. He did give me another chance. It went about the same. The second time around, I remember to lock the door. But those pesky lights stayed on all night. And so I never uh, got to the point of manager in in the grocery store, which is why I'm so uh, strict about turning lights off and locking doors now, I think, probably. So that did not work out very well. I was put in charge. I was told what to do. I knew the routine, 
I knew the risks, I knew the weight of it, and I just, I guess I wasn't ready, I didn't do a really good job with that. Uh, I've, thankfully, I think I've grown since then, and I've gotten better with some of those details. I remember in 2008, my wife and I moved here to plant uh, True Vine. It wasn't called True Vine. Back then, it had no name. It had no people. But uh, my boss or direct overseer, uh, his name was Wayne Spriggs. He was our district superintendent, gathered about 200 people in May of 2008 into this room, which is, you know, we've only had 200 people in here a few times ever. Uh, in, in one time. And so he had gathered all these strangers. I didn't know hardly any of them. There were, I had a few you know, close friends and stuff, but there weren't really many people here. And he essentially you know, charged us, charged Kendra and I with establishing a new congregation that would uh, be in this neighborhood and meet in this building. And he, in front of 200 mostly strangers, he charged and commissioned us, told us that we're, set, we're putting you here with this uh, assignment to establish a new congregation, and he actually had Kendra and I kneel at the altar. It was when we had an altar, it was right here, and we kneeled, and he and a couple other uh, older men prayed for us. It was a rainy day. It was kind of a rainy, humid spring day. It was uh, Pentecost Sunday, 2008. We're kneeling at the altar. It's raining, and he's praying over us, giving us, a, putting us in charge of this new congregation. He's got his hands on us. Several other people are surrounding us. And as soon as he says amen, boom, there was this huge clap of thunder. And it was freaky. And I remember looking at Kendra and she looked at me. And, we, and I confirmed this this week with several independent sources that were there. I was like, that did happen, right? And they were like, yes, that happened. We looked at each other like, what have we signed up for? That there's thunder and lightning. I mean, it felt like uh, uh, Moses coming down off the mountain in uh, what the, what's the Charles, Charles Heston, the, Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments. You know, just like boom and and uh, I don't know. I felt the weight of that. Who knows if you know what that was? Maybe that was a coincidence. Maybe it wasn't a coincidence, but um, it it sure felt weighty to me, and it has never stopped feeling weighty to me. In fact. Last year, <laughs> last year, I was in the, this sanctuary on a, it was a rainy Tuesday morning. I was probably straightening chairs or something, just trying to relieve some stress, you know. And uh, there was thunder. It was a rainy Tuesday morning, just a normal day, middle of the week, and there was a loud clap of thunder, and I immediately, I immediately just stopped everything and went back to the altar and knelt and kind of just prayed through like, okay, God, you're reminding me of uh, that that moment where you gave us responsibility. So if you've ever been put in charge of anything, big or small, that moment where the authority and the responsibility is handed to you, where you are put in charge, is that moment is called a charge. We may not use that terminology, we may not describe it that way, but when, my, uh, when the owner of the grocery store that I worked at handed me the keys and told me how to lock out uh, and told me what to do, and that was him charging me with responsibility and giving me, delegating to me some authority for running the store while he was absent, right? 
And when my wife and I knelt at this altar and had people lay hands on us and pray for us, even though they might not have used the word, we charge you, they were saying we are putting you in charge of this assignment. We're giving you the responsibility and also the authority to do what's necessary to carry this out. Now, when we get into 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, this is Paul's charge to Timothy. This is Paul wrapping up this first letter to Timothy and he's saying, I charge you, I am putting you in charge, I am giving you authority and also responsibility to carry out certain things and this charge that Paul gives to Timothy has five elements to it. There's really five ideas or concepts that are found in this charge and I wanna look at these five elements really quickly. Those five elements are, there's commands, there's affirmation, There's an invocation of God's presence. There's an anticipation of Christ's return. And fifth and final, there's a celebration of God. So let me read this passage uh, from 1 Timothy 6, and then we're going to look at the five elements of this charge. Starting in verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So we are getting to the end of this first letter that Paul writes to Timothy. He's kind of tying up loose ends. He's summarizing what he said. Verse 13 is where he says, I charge you in the presence of God to keep the commandment. We're going to look uh, really quickly at what the commandment that he's referring to there is, but first I want to start in verse 11. Verse 11 says, uh, hey Timothy, flee from these things. Uh, what, what are these things that Timothy's being told to flee from? Well, that just go back a couple of verses. If you start in chapter six, verse three, there's three specific things that Paul is telling Timothy to flee from. The first is false doctrine, flee from false doctrine. The second is disputes, like arguments and divisive situations, flee from those things. And then finally, he's saying to flee from greed. Don't let greed take root in your heart. We've covered this passage in previous weeks. So when Paul says to Timothy, flee from these things, those are these things that Paul's telling him to flee from. But in verses 11 and 12, there are actually four commands that Paul gives to Timothy. Uh, The first, I'm just going to summarize, and this is in verse 11. The first command is, hey, run. When he says, flee from these things, but pursue righteousness, I see that as kind of a fight or flight type situation. You know, he's saying run. Whether you're fleeing from the sin or pursuing the righteousness, run. Be moving. You need to be getting away from discord and division, false doctrine and greed. You need to be pursuing or chasing or running after things like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So the first command 
I'm just summarizing, condensing verse 11 into the word run. Verse 12 gives a second command, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Already you might be seeing a pattern that the way that Paul is talking about obedience to Jesus here with things like run, fight the good fight, and then he goes on in verse uh, 12, he says take hold. All of these are actions. At this point, Paul's not saying, hey, think about this. Take into consideration, ponder. No, he's using run, fight, grab on. These are strong images. All three of these commands imply effort. The effort goes in to following Jesus, that there's effort given to faithfulness uh, with Jesus. And then, uh, so it's run, fight the good fight of faith, and then take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. I like this, I like the way that Paul talks about, I like the way that Paul talks about uh, the Christian life because he says, take hold of, right now, take hold of eternal life. Eternal life is long, but he's saying take hold of it now. You know, eternal life doesn't begin when you die. Eternal life begins when you come to Christ. Right, so you're already, if you've already come to Christ, if you've already put your faith in Jesus, you're already experiencing eternal life, or at least you can be. You could be. You have access to it now. You don't have to wait for death. Is Jesus your Savior, or is death your Savior? Because you've already met Jesus, even if you haven't met death, right? Let's stop waiting for death to be the thing that delivers us, right? Let's stop waiting for death to be the thing that frees us from sin. Let's stop waiting for death to be the thing that frees us from uh, sickness. Let's, you know what I mean? Like death is not your savior, Jesus is your savior. Have you met Jesus? If so, take hold of the eternal life. Today, now, not in the future, but immediately. And then we just kind of unpack that. that. There's a big word for that, it's called to appropriate. It's simply to take the, the benefits of following Jesus and to begin to experience them and apply them now and not hold that off to the future. When he says uh, flee, fight, take hold, all of these imply effort or activity. The way that he talks about sin and righteousness in the Christian life here is so intentional. Um, you know, that word flee, is that's the right word. He says flee from sin, we flirt with sin. You know, like he's saying get as far away from it as you can possibly get. We like to get as close as we can get without sinning, right? Like, oh, I'm just gonna get right up on the edge and lean over, right? And then we wonder, why are we falling? Because we're leaning in, right? Instead of flirting with sin and seeing how close can I get without technically violating a command, right? What if we fled from sin and got as far away from it as we possibly could? If, <laughs> if you've ever ridden in an Uber or a taxi or a bus, do you want them to see how close they can get to other cars in traffic? <laughs> My wife is a very experienced backseat driver and she apparently thinks that there is a steering wheel and a brake pedal on her side of the car uh, because in her opinion, I sometimes get too close to other cars or, you know, cliffs and other things, uh, buildings, whatever. And so 
Uh, and her, her desire would be that I flee those things as much as possible, that I not test my limits, that I not see how close can I get this without squeezing through here without hitting someone, right? Well, that should be our approach to sin is to flee it, not flirt with it, not to see how close we can get. Like uh, how much sin can I uh, approximate in my life without actually violating anything? So these are the commands that Paul gives to Timothy Run, fight, and grab on or take hold of eternal life. And these commands, I believe, are the commands that verse 14 are referring to when it says, keep the commandment. These are the commands that he's referring to, or perhaps it's referring to all of the commands included in 1 Timothy, but it's at least referring to the commands in verse 11. These commands in verse 11, this is kind of a nerdy thing, but... They're in the imperative mood. So in our language, we have different moods of speaking. We have things like subjunctive and indicative and interrogative and imperative. So interrogative mood is like you'd ask a question like, do you want that pizza? Or you must have this pizza? You must have this pizza. You can say you must have this pizza as a question. You must have this pizza? You can also say it, as subjunctive, which is showing like a suggestion, like you must have this pizza. Or you can say it as imperative. You must have this pizza, which is how I talk. <laughs> this is the imperative mood. It is imperative, or it's, you should just always put the word must in an imperative. You must flee these things. You must pursue righteousness. You must fight the good faith. You must take hold of eternal life. These are not suggestions. These are not questions. These are commands that Paul is giving Timothy. All right, so now that you got your uh, grammar lesson for the day, let's move on to affirmation. Uh, so first, there are commands. That's one of the elements of this charge that Paul gives Timothy. Secondly, there's affirmation. It's short. It's right in the middle of verse 11 when he says, flee from these things, you man of God, and then he goes on to pursue righteousness. Just for a brief second, he stops in the middle of verse 11, and Paul says to Timothy, you man of God. Think about maybe what that meant to Timothy, because their relationship was kind of like a spiritual father, spiritual son relationship. And so you have Paul writing this letter to Timothy, and in the middle of all these commands, Paul stops to affirm Timothy, to say, hey, you're a man of God, which I think is in contrast to all these false teachers and bad elders that they've been having in their church in Ephesus. He's saying, but you, Timothy, you're a man of God. Now, Timothy grew up, his, his Jewish mom and Jewish grandmother would have taught him the Old Testament. Man of God was what you called people like Elijah and Moses and David. I mean, that was a, not, we, we use that phrase maybe too loosely and far more frequently, almost jokingly nowadays, but for, for Timothy growing up in a Jewish household, man of God, that's like a prophet. That's like someone who has a calling on their life, but that's what Paul is using to refer to Timothy. He calls him a man of God, this phrase usually reserved for a prophet in the Old Testament. This is an affirmation, but also a sober reminder of his responsibility. You're not just a man. You're not a man of the people. You're a man of God. You are a man of God. I'm affirming it, but also reminding you of the weight of your responsibility 
You represent God to people. I could say that to anybody in this room and anybody watching. If your neighbors know you're a Christian, you represent Jesus to them. I mean, it feels sometimes unfair. It feels sometimes like very heavy and very weighty, but it is what it is. If you go around saying that you're a Christian, people really think you represent Jesus. And that's something to, I guess, keep in the forefront of our minds at all times, that every interaction with a neighbor, every interaction with a coworker, are we behaving like a man or woman of God or not? Because we're representing God to people, and there's a weightiness and a heaviness to that. So this is an affirmation, but it's also a reminder of responsibility. And... Uh, it's powerful. There's, a, there's this incredible power in affirmation when you affirm a person. When you're able to look at them the way God looks at them and then put words to it. You know, when you're able to see a person through Jesus' eyes, not through your own eyes, not through their own eyes, but the way God sees them, and then you put words to it. It's, it's almost prophetic when we do that. You know, when we call out who someone really is in Jesus. Because probably most of the week, they're not getting that, right? Most of the week, they're probably getting criticism, uh, nitpicked, maybe put down, uh, disrespected. So when we get this opportunity to, to tell someone who they are in God's sight, through God's eyes, it's powerful, and I know I've heard this number repeatedly, and I don't know if it's true, but I, I hear this frequently. You know, for every seven, uh, you need seven compliments for every one insult or something to that effect, right? Like, now, if that's true, that indicates to me that we really are broken, fallen people that are more prone to believe shame than encouragement. But when you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, one prophetic word of affirmation can actually erase not just seven insults, but seven years of insults, seven years of criticism, seven years of uh, people be nitpicking your behavior. One prophetic affirmation from a person who you respect and trust has an incredible amount of power. And so I think... This is just a, like a side point of application. Let's make sure that we're affirming people when we get ap opportunities to do that, okay? All right, so first element is of this charge that Timothy gets from Paul is there are commands. Second element is there's affirmation. Third element is this. There's an invocation of God's presence. Uh, in verses 13 and 14, Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. So in verse 13, Paul says, I'm charging you in the presence of God. This isn't just you and me talking. There is a third party here. There is a witness to this agreement that we have, this relational agreement that witnesses God. I am charging you in the presence of God. Now that's interesting because Paul's doing this through a letter. He's not standing there speaking to Timothy face to face. He's doing this through a, through a letter. But when he invokes God's presence and says, I charge you in the presence of God, he's, that, that would be like us saying, as God is my witness. Or if you're a little more um, in people's faces, you say, God is watching. <laughs> 
uh, which I guess I'm gonna start using that on my kids now. They're getting to that age where I still need to start telling them God is watching. So, but as God is my witness would be our modern equivalent of I charge you in the presence of God, meaning God is observing the conversation we're having. God is aware of this. This invocation of God's presence is invoking God's divine authority. It's uh, mentioning God as the source of accountability, but also God as the source of empowerment. God is not just the one who's going to watch and make sure that this agreement plays out. He's also the one that's going to provide the power or the energy for this agreement to uh, play out. This is not Paul alone as a man telling Timothy how to do his job. This is Paul speaking on behalf of the Lord, giving Timothy a divine assignment which he will be empowered to fulfill by the God who Paul has just invoked. God does not give us assignments without giving us the power we need to carry out those assignments. Would any of you ever want to carry out an assignment from God without his power? Right, me neither. But we do take up assignments frequently that he has not given us. And those assignments have no power. Right, he says, just to overly simplify, God says, do A, B, C, those are the things I'm giving you power for. And we say, I'm gonna go ahead and do X, Y, Z. And he's like, well, you can do that, but I'm not providing any power for that. You're on your own there. You know, he gives us our free will, but there's no obligation on his end to empower our self-will, right? So he says, well, listen, if you wanna do things in my strength, here's A, B, C. And when we do those things, he provides the grace or the power for that. Or we can do X, Y, Z in our own strength. As we grow in our Christian maturity, I think we start to set aside X, Y, Z. We stop taking up our own assignments. We stop doing our own will. And we start picking up the ABC, those things that God has given us. And uh, as we actually grow in understanding our purpose and our calling and our spiritual gifts, we find, boy, ABC really does fit who I am better. X, Y, Z it really fit my greed, it fit my ambition, it fit maybe my lusts, but it didn't, it didn't fit my identity. But I noticed that when I do ABC, man, there's like fruit, there's results, people grow as a result of it, people are changed. Maybe I should stick with ABC because that uh, makes use of my gifting and my purpose and my calling. Now, uh, Paul tells Timothy in verse 14, keep Uh, the commandment without stain or reproach. Stain would be either, uh, probably most likely sin. Keep this commandment without mingling sin in with it. And keep it uh, without reproach, meaning do a good job with this. Be above criticism. You know, be be above criticism with this. I think the only way to keep a commandment without stain or reproach is to do it wholeheartedly, going back to what we talked about last week. It's just being wholehearted. When God gives you an assignment, when God gives you a command, when God puts you in charge of something, you better put your whole heart into it. You cannot do things half-heartedly when God has given them to you uh, to do. So, First element is commands. The second elements of this call, charge or affirmation. The third element is an invocation of God's presence. There's a fourth element. 
This is, we're taking a little bit of a turn here. Verses 14 through 16, this fourth element is an anticipation of Christ's return. Keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light. So Paul gives Timothy a timeline. I want you to go ahead and keep these commandments until Jesus returns. Not until the end of the year, not until the second quarter, not until you, know, you're, you hit retirement age, none of that stuff. Keep these commands until Jesus returns. So this is now a lifetime assignment for Timothy. This is a life calling. This isn't like, well, you know, in this season of life, or while you're working at this church, or while you're doing this, or while you're doing that, until you're married, until you have kids, until you graduate, until you retire, it's, you're going to do this stuff, you're going to keep these commands, till Jesus returns. That's how you know that this is part of his calling, because he's either going to die or Jesus is going to come back before he quits this stuff, right? And turns out he dies, right? Now, I actually like this timeline um, you know, keep these commands until the appearing uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because I, I do think about the future a lot. It's just part of my personality. Um, I've shared this with you in the past. You know, I, when we started the church, I wanted to make sure that I was like, man, I want this to, I want this to last for my kids. You know, I want my kids to be able to go to church here when they're, adults. And then I thought, what, maybe, maybe we should think bigger. What about a hundred years? And I started to think about a hundred year vision. Like what if we, you know, the church that used to meet in this building made it about 80 years. You know, the church that we used to rent from at Tyson Ave, they made it about 135 years. I just started thinking a hundred years, man, I would feel good about that. If we started a church that lasted a hundred years, wow, that would be, that would be something. And then God just kept pushing me like, well, you can think bigger. And I was like, 200 years? And then that's when this time frame came into mind. How about putting your effort into things that are gonna last until Jesus returns? You know? What if we did that? So that would mean that we would have to invest ourselves in spiritual things, right? Because we don't know if we can build a building that's gonna last till Jesus returns. I mean, maybe, but no one's done that yet. Right? The college I went to had that approach. They, their, their approach was, Jesus is going to return soon. Let's cut some corners on these buildings. And that was uh, 130 years ago, and Jesus has not returned, and we had no air conditioning. So what if we started looking at our lives as, what am I doing that is going to last until Jesus' return? And then, let me push this a little bit further. What if we invested our lives in things that not only lasted until Jesus returned, but lasted through Jesus' return? Things like evangelism, sharing the gospel with people, who that's going to make it through the return of Jesus into heaven. I mean, what if we started pouring our lives out, investing our lives in things that at least, at the bare minimum, survived until the return of Jesus and maybe even went beyond that and we were investing in spiritual things, not always material or physical things. This is a lifetime assignment for Timothy, which means it is all-encompassing. Now, 
final element of this charge that Paul gives Timothy is uh, it's really a celebration of God. Verses 13, 15, and 16 start. You almost feel like Paul's about to bust out and do a praise dance or something, the way he's talking here. He just, he's no longer talking to or about Timothy. He's starting to talk about God. We call this a doxology. He just kind of turns into worship here. He says, uh, Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession... Uh, which he will bring about, he will bring about his appearing at the proper time. He is the blessed, uh, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So, man, there's a lot in this. I actually just wanted to preach this part of the passage. I didn't even really want to touch on the rest of it, but I feel like I have a responsibility to preach every verse in the Bible. But this is the part that I've been dwelling on all week is the way that Paul is talking about God in these verses. Verse 13, he refers to God as the giver of life to all things. God is referred to elsewhere in the Bible as the creator and sustainer. If God is the giver of life to all things, he is the creator. In fact, almost every religion and every culture, their concept of God is always traced back to who's responsible for existence. Who's the creator? Even if it's not the Christian God, who is the creator? Who's the reason we have a world? Who's the reason we have humanity? Who's the reason that we have trees and animals? Whoever is or whatever is the cause of existence, whoever is the cause of creation, we call that God. So as we read the Bible, we find, and that's why the Bible starts in Genesis 1 with creation, we find that our concept of God comes from not uh, the man upstairs in the sky, but the one who's the cause and the source of existence, the one who's the cause of creation, right? He's the one that spoke the earth into existence. And he is the giver of life to all things, and he is also the sustainer of all things. He doesn't just, God did not just build the universe like a machine, hit go, and then walk away. He has been sustaining creation ever since. He, he makes sure that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. He makes sure that the seasons change. He makes sure that... Uh, you know, nature and creation continue under the laws and the systems that he has established and he sustains and maintains. He's not just a creator who walks away, which, which is called deism, and some people mistake that for Christianity, someone who winds up a cosmic clock and, puts, and then walks away and doesn't interact with his creation. That's deism. We do not believe that. We believe in theism, uh, and uh, actually we believe in biblical uh, Christianity that God continues to interact with his creation. He sustains creation at all times, every day. He is actively involved, touching people's lives, even interacting with nature and physics and science, and there's no area of existence that is outside of God's touch. Verse 15 refers to God as the sovereign, which is another way of saying he is the ruler. Uh, he, he who is the blessed and only, only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. So sovereign, king, lord are really just, 
It's a continuation of the same concept that God is the royal figure who has all authority over creation. He's sovereign, which means he has all authority uh, over all of creation. Of all the kings on the earth, he's the king of the kings. Of all the lords on the earth, he's the lord of the lords. I mean, he's the capital L, Lord, capital K, King, capital S, Sovereign, right? We would say he's the president of presidents, the governor of governors, the mayor of mayors, you know, the boss of bosses, the parole officer of parole officers, you know, whatever you got going on in your life. He's the one who's in charge of all of those things, right? And so... King of kings, Lord of lords, he is the source of all sovereignty. Nothing is outside of his reign. If you look at that word sovereign, in the word is reign. Uh, It also says that uh, at the end of verse 16, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Dominion uh, is saying that he would have the 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 whole of creation, right? Uh, whenever a king has dominion, king, king's dominion is kingdom. When you combine those words, you get kingdom. If God is the sovereign who has all dominion, that, that means the earth and the world is his kingdom. He's the king of kings. So this language is all has to do with his royal sovereignty and control and responsibility for all of creation. Verse 16 says that God alone possesses immortality, um, God is the source of what makes anyone and anything immortal. He determines that. He alone possesses immortality. You and I don't have immortality unless God gives it to us through Jesus. Without God giving it to us through Jesus, we would not live forever. We don't have immortality in, our, in and of ourselves. We are not immortal. We are not invincible. That's a hard thing. Sometimes that's a hard thing for men to accept. You're not invincible. You're not immortal. Uh, God alone is the possessor of immortality. Verse 16, I love this one. It says, he dwells in unapproachable light. God dwells in unapproachable light. This is a good verse for sometimes when we get too familiar with God when we think he's our buddy. And then we read this, he dwells in unapproachable light. Maybe uh, if, if, if you lose your Bible someday and can't find it, pull up Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and watch the scene where they look at the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant and their faces melt off. I don't know if that's theologically accurate, but I like to think that it is. You know, God dwells in unapproachable light, that uh, he is so holy and so good and so perfect that the light that emanates from him, we can't even approach it. Now, it says this thing, it continues this thought, and it says something that's kind of confusing. Uh, he dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. So this is saying that no man has seen God, but God, aren't there stories in the Bible where people saw you? Didn't Isaiah see you? and fall down and worship in Isaiah chapter 6. Didn't Daniel see you? Didn't Moses say, show me your glory, and you showed yourself to him? But every single one of those stories has some sort of caveat where like Isaiah says that the train of God's robe, that his robe was filling the temple with glory, and he, can't, he still can't 
He cannot describe the features of God's face. I mean, even Isaiah sees it, and he almost starts to melt. Um, Daniel, similar. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, if I show you my glory, what did he say would happen? You'll die. You'll get fried, burnt to a crisp, air fryer to the max, you know, crispy. If I show you, but here's what I'll do. I will let you see the back of me, but even even to see the back of God, what did Moses have to do? Be hidden in a rock. Like a, he was on a mountain. He had to go hide in a crack in the rock just to see the back of God. In order to see God and survive, Moses had to hide himself in a rock. This is actually, that story is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus, who is called the rock, not Dwayne Johnson. Before Dwayne Johnson and the Pope, Jesus was the rock, right? What do you have to do if you're going to be in God's presence and not get fried? You have to be hidden in Jesus, the rock. You know, that whole thing is a picture of us being in Christ. You have to be hidden in Jesus, hiding behind Jesus, wrapped in Jesus if you're going to see God and not burst into flames, essentially. Jesus is the one that brings us into God's presence and allows us to not only survive, but enjoy it. Now, I love, I love the way that this passage talks about God. This is a quote that I, I mean, I probably say this once a month here, uh, a Tozer quote, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. You know, if you think about God as dwelling in inapproachable light and the sole possessor of immortality and the king of kings and lord of lords, your life with Jesus is going to take on a whole new freshness. It's going to be vibrant. It's not going to be stale. It's hard to have a stale walk with God when you think of him as dwelling in inapproachable light. That does kind of um, produce reverence and love for God in a person. But when you think of God as like, an old man sitting in the clouds with a beard who's bald for some reason. I don't know why he would be bald. Sorry, Scott. Um, baldiness is next to godliness. But uh, when you think of God as this disinterested, kind of mean, cranky old man who just wants you to get off of his lawn, it's going to make your walk with God really unenjoyable and uh, stale and you're not going to delight in it. But when you see God the way that Paul describes him here, man, that's good stuff. It, it, it actually creates in us a desire to be with God. Uh, a low view of God will lead to low faith and low worship. When you think that God is, eh, he's okay, your worship will be, eh, okay. Your obedience will be, eh, okay. But when you understand who God is, and you have a high view of God, you'll have high worship. You'll have high love for him. You'll have a high view of him, high uh, view of him, and high reverence for him. If you've ever limboed, I'm, I'm a big limbo guy. What's the motto of limboing? How low can you go, right? With worshiping uh, of God, the motto is the opposite. It's how high can you go? If you view God highly, I bet you could go higher still. If you view God very highly, 
I bet you could go higher still. In fact, let me help you out. You don't have to worry about going too high in your view of God. No one's ever said, God is super duper, mighty, excellent, awesome, and God's like, well, you know, bring it down a notch. That has never happened in the history of the world that someone has had too high a view of God. As high as your view of God is, it could always stand to go higher. And as your view of God goes higher, you find that your walk with Jesus gets higher, your worship gets higher, your obedience gets higher, the heat of your devotion to Jesus gets higher and burns hotter. Now, let me, I want to review this whole thing because there's this progression in this passage where Paul starts with these, I almost feel like it's a, a whole sermon ago. Remember when we were just talking about the commands to Timothy to flee and to pursue? And now all of a sudden we're talking about God dwelling in inapproachable light. How did we get from the little meticulous details of Timothy's life that were specific to his context in Ephesus and his assignment at this church? We, got, we went from that to God on a throne ruling over the universe, right? It, it, it took this... It just started here and just got bigger and bigger and bigger as we went. And there's this, uh, it's like a progression in the passage. It starts with the micro of Timothy's life and ends with the macro of Jesus. Uh, it, It actually sets Timothy's calling and assignment as like a small jewel in the larger frame of God's work of redeeming creation. It puts Timothy in context. It starts with, hey, Timothy, I need you to flee from greed and disruption and false doctrine, and I want you to pursue righteousness and godliness. And then it builds toward, you're gonna do that until Jesus returns. And then it builds to, speaking of Jesus, he's the sovereign, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and it grows as it goes, right? It grows as it goes, that's a good one. So it puts Timothy's little itty-bitty calling into God's big picture of summing all things up in Jesus. And that's where I wanna kind of uh, start some application for us and what this passage means for us. Because I, I, I can't bring you all up front right now and have a commissioning service and charge you and you know, I charge you to go raise your kids and you to go do a good job at work and you to go reach your neighborhood. We're not gonna do that. Here's what we can do. We want to understand how our specific calling fits into God's larger plan to sum all things up in Jesus. So this is the first thing I want to ask. What have you been put in charge of? Have you been put in charge of a family? Do you have kids and a spouse that you're supposed to be caring for? What have you been put in charge of at work? I mean, do you lead a team Do you manage anyone? Is there a project that you're responsible for? But what have you been put in charge of? On your your block, are you the block captain or the unofficial block mom or dad who has kids that just look to you for leadership? How about here at church? Have you been put in charge of a ministry, a responsibility that you have? Whatever you've been put in charge of, how does that fit into the larger picture of Jesus summing up all things in himself. 
It, so let's say you're in charge of something at work. You have a project at work. It's your responsibility. How do you do that in such a way that it fits into the bigger picture of God's plan? Well, you do that in a way that, number one, glorifies Jesus. You don't do a bad job. You don't cut corners. You don't throw diligence out the window. You do a good job with it, right? You also, I hope, I hope you understand this, you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. You know, the power of the Holy Spirit isn't just for preaching and praying and singing. The first two people to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the Bible were not preachers or missionaries or healers. They were carpenters. They were craftsmen. Bezalel and Oholiab, in the book of Exodus, they built the tabernacle. They worked with wood and leather and jewels. And they built that, and it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Before Peter and the apostles, before the church in Ephesus in Acts 19, were Bezalel and Oholiab swinging hammers, working saws in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so whether you have a blue-collar job and you work with your hands or a white-collar job and you work with spreadsheets or you work at a church, you can do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is available to you for everything you've been put in charge of. So how, do you, how does your charge fit into the bigger picture of Jesus' redemptive work? You do it in a way that glorifies Jesus and you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you can do it that way, if you can do it that way until Jesus returns, I'm not saying you can never switch jobs, but if you can have that attitude toward your work, toward your calling, toward the things you've put in, been put in charge of until Jesus returns, Jesus will get glory, and you're, you will fit nicely into the bigger picture of what God is doing to redeem creation, mankind, humanity included, but not limited to humanity. You know, God's redeeming all of creation. Romans says that earth groans, uh, earth is groaning. It says the Holy Spirit groans. There's a lot of groaning. Time out. I'm going to preach a separate sermon for a moment. Earth is groaning until, it says, the sons of God, until Christians come out of their shells. It says, till the sons of God are revealed. Earth is groaning. Earth is saying, there's more, there's more, until, until we Christians actually start to fulfill our calling. So earth is groaning. Who else is groaning? This is Romans 8, same chapter. The Holy Spirit is groaning. It says you don't know what you should pray, but the Holy Spirit is groaning when, on, on your behalf. The earth is groaning. The Holy Spirit is groaning. What are we doing? Yawning. It's like all of creation not, and the Holy Spirit's not a part of creation, but all of the earth, creation, as well as the Godhead, is groaning, and I think like we're bored with it or something. We just don't even understand what's happening in the earth or what's happening in the heavens. We understand what's happening, I guess, I don't know, on Facebook or wherever our attention is. Okay, time in, end of that sermon, back to the sermon that I plan to preach. That might have been better than the planned sermon. Um, Come on, Loretta, don't throw me under the bus now. All right, um, so what have you been put in charge of? That, that's a real question that I want you to answer, and that will be a question that our discipleship groups will consider this week. What have you put in, been put in charge of? You might be able to make a little list. I know for me, I'm in charge of my kids. 
Uh, at home, I'm in charge of the money. Uh, I'm in charge of frying the chicken wings. I have, you know, on my block, really the only responsibility I have is for my own property, but I, I'm in charge of being a good neighbor. At church, I have certain responsibilities that I'm in charge of. Put, put a little list together of things that you actually are in charge of. And then ask yourself, how does this fit into the big picture of what God's doing? Like if, if, Timothy, if Paul addressed Timothy and he started with these little meticulous commands and then it just grew over time to doxology, worshiping God, how could your life do that? We start with, okay, I'm in charge of, I gotta get the kids' lunch packed. How can that grow into worship of God? How can that fit into the bigger picture? If you do life with that level of intentionality, you'll see transformation in people's lives. You'll see breakthrough. You'll find fulfillment as you serve God. So I wanna pray for you because it would be pastoral malpractice of me to just hype you up and send you out so that you can do, try to do that in your own strength for the next two days and then this doesn't work. I wanna pray that you would have the, the grace, the empowerment from the Lord to do that. So if you wouldn't mind standing, I wanna pray for you. If you're willing, would you mind putting your hands out like you are in a receiving posture, kinda like this? That to me, uh, it's not magic, it's just an act of faith uh, that we are ex expecting to receive from the Lord. So Jesus, you call us to do things in context of your bigger picture of redeeming all of creation. But you also empower us to do it. You did not send us into the world to just kind of falter and screw up and fail in our own strength. You gave us the Holy Spirit the moment we put our faith in you. And Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit that you deposited in us would now begin to overflow out of us. Lord, I'm not asking that you put more of the Spirit in us. I'm asking that you draw more of the Spirit out of us, that we would release, that we would overflow the Holy Spirit through our words, through our hands, through our feet, the things that we say, the things that we sing, the time that we spend, the money that we spend. Will the Holy Spirit overflow out of us, Jesus? We cannot accomplish anything meaningful in our own strength. You told the disciples, without you, you can accomplish nothing. We can accomplish nothing. And Lord, we agree with that. Without you, we accomplish nothing. The fruit that we bear will not last without you. So Jesus, overflow out of us by the Holy Spirit. I pray that in your name, amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.